0: Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than seven million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit PrizePicks.com/get100 and use code GET100. That's code GET100 at PrizePicks.com/get100. For a first deposit matchup to $100. Prize picks. Daily fantasy sports made easy.
1: From the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C., you are on the Hill. Tom Fitzgerald here with you. This time on the Hill, we are joined by our guest. Michael O'Hanlon is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He is an expert on all things uh, related to foreign affairs and national defense strategy, and we are pleased to welcome you in. Michael O'Hanlon on the Hill this time.
2: Thank you, Tom, nice to be with you. Uh, Good to have you.
1: We come to this day after a week of the president having traveled literally halfway around the world to go to Vietnam and coming back with no agreement. So let's walk backwards from, you know, one o'clock in the morning our time Mm -hmm. I guess Wednesday when, when this news comes out that nothing became of this summit. Um, was it a good thing to go and have this or should we have had a deal worked out before he goes?
2: I don't think there was any deal to work out before. You know, we're a quarter century into this process of negotiating with North Korean dictators and let's make no illusion, they are brutal dictators, all three of them, the mm-hmm. grandfather, father, and now the grandson and uh, Kim Jong-un may be in some ways more worldly, but he's also brutal. He had his half-brother and his uncle killed early in his tenure, and uh, I don't know what deal he would have been willing to strike at a time when he still thought this, you know, new American president or this new relationship he had built with President Trump might deliver him manna from heaven without even having to try. So why is he going to empower his working groups, uh, his lower level diplomats to agree to some deal that is on terms that would sort of be seen as fair and balanced when he's still hoping he can get sort of a home run based on his relationship with Donald Trump. And I think Donald Trump had to go and face to face tell Kim Jong-un, I'm not going to give you a bad deal. I'm not going to be duped into a bad deal. Kim needed to hear that from Trump before he then would go home and reassess his options, which I hope he's doing now. There's no proof this will work. Mm -hmm. But I think uh, there was a value in Trump Both building the relationship further to create some trust, but also holding a firm line on what kind of a deal was doable. I'm no supporter of President Trump's foreign policy overall, but I think on this one particular case, there is a certain method to the madness.
1: Well, let's talk about that, because there's been some harumphing this week by, you know, I'll call it the pinstripe set, even though you're wearing a lovely pinstripe suit yourself. Thank you kindly. I won't include you in this. But, you know... Oh, we shouldn't engage with this dictator. We should know what we're doing when we get over there. You know, they used to say only Nixon could go to China. Right. And what that meant was only somebody who was a hardcore anti-communist could deal strongly with communist China. Mm-hmm. Is there something in particular about Donald Trump that is suited for dealing with this, you know, leader of this hermit kingdom?
2: Well, you know, Trump's vanity is usually not an asset, but in this case, he wants to do something big and different, and he likes to buck conventional wisdom and see us pinstripers and his predecessors proven wrong after a legacy in which Democrats and Republicans, Clinton, Bush, Obama, all failed to stymie the North Korean nuclear program. I'm not blaming those three presidents, and one thing we should keep in mind, if Kim Jong-un is willing to do a deal now, it's partly because he probably has 50 or 60 bombs, He's not going to give those up. He may give up his ability to make more bombs. That's where the negotiation sort of has come to. And I think that provides actually more of a potential for a deal. We give a little. They give a little. No one gets everything that they want. Donald Trump walks into that moment where now also the world has recognized it needs to put tougher sanctions on North Korea after all of its nuclear and missile tests of the last few years, some of which happened under Obama, some happened in Trump's first year. So that made it possible to get China and Russia to support sanctions they previously had opposed. So it's, it's all these things coming together that create an opportunity. It's not so much about just Trump himself, but I think his personality uh, may provide both danger and potential for where this goes from here.
1: The prior thinking was, we're not going to talk to you, North Korea, until you start behaving like a member of the family of nations. There's really no evidence that they started doing that. In fact, to the contrary, they were testing nuclear weapons. They were testing missiles. They were doing incredibly aggressive actions. But yet they get to the table with the United States. At the same time, though, they leave Hanoi this week with another promise from North Korea that there's not going to be any more missile testing and that there's not going to be any more nuclear testing. Is that enough for now? Is that good enough for now?
2: It's not really good enough for now because they're still making six or eight bombs a year based on the best intelligence we have. So they don't have to test. They don't, well, they don't have to yeah. test to increase the size of their arsenal. If they want to threaten us be able to put a warhead on a long-range ICBM, they probably do need to test. I don't actually think the North Koreans have any reason to be confident they could threaten North America right now. Now, we can't be 100% sure of our safety, Mm -hmm. but we're in this gray zone where they've done a a few tests with ICBMs, long-range missiles. They've done six tests with nuclear weapons. We don't really know if they've built a weapon that's small enough and sort of robust enough to go through the incredible, uh, you know, rigor of, of launch and then especially atmospheric reentry, which we know is a very, very, you know, tumultuous and dangerous process, be it for astronauts trying to come home, be it for a warhead trying to come back from space. I don't think the North Koreans have confidence they can make that kind of threat against us. So there is a value in the moratorium, but it's not an acceptable steady state. I would be okay with a complete freeze on their arsenal and living in that world for a while, but they're still increasing the size. And I think we've got to get after that issue, which is why I am glad President Trump's Mm -hmm. sort of forcing the pace of this. And by the Mm -hmm. way, don't forget the sanctions are still in place, and the sanctions bite tougher than most (laughs) pinstripers like me are remembering to underscore. We think that North Korean trade went down by half or more in 2018, and that it continues to be at that lower level today. Mm -hmm. The North Korean economy is struggling along and doing sort of okay because they've allowed some limited privatization, but it's not getting the kind of foreign resources, investment. Of flows of Mm -hmm. currency, that they really need to go to the next level. And if Kim Jong-un wants to be the leader of that country for half a century as a 35-year-old dictator, that's probably what he aspires to. Uh, He presumably wants to do better than they're doing now. So I think he has a strong incentive to find some compromise that allows some of those sanctions to be lifted, which is why I have not yet given up on this process.
1: So this thing breaks up, but what was surprising to many was it didn't seem to break up, even though a lunch was canceled and it kind of came to an abrupt end. It didn't seem like it came to a nasty end in that respect, that we are suddenly on the brink of war with the North. In fact, just the opposite. It seems to kind of be where we were when this process began. Is that a hopeful sign for possibly a third summit down the line where actually something could get
2: done? Yeah, there is a possibility for a third summit, but I'm still glad I agree with you. I'm glad that the nastiness did not resume the way it had in 2017 when Kim and Trump were insulting each other. And Rocket to man to and Doddard. Right. Yeah. My, and my nuclear button is bigger yeah. than yours. Yeah. I mean, there was some real worry that yeah. a crisis could deteriorate into a conflict. And so I'm glad to see President Trump ironically treat Kim Jong-un better than he treats most of the Democrats in the United States, most of our allies abroad. You know, there is an incongruity there, and I think President Trump should try to be nicer to his friends as well as his enemies, or at least his, you know, his uh, allies in South Korea and Europe and elsewhere. Or Or
1: at least as hard on the leader of North Korea as he is on the prime minister of Canada.
2: Yes. But I'm glad he's not too hard on the leader in North Korea because I don't want to see the nastiness resume and the brinkmanship resume. So he's got to find a way to be firm and and he should have been tougher on the Otto Warmbier human rights account. But uh, he is right not to let this thing deteriorate into threats. Let's talk
1: about Otto Warmbier because the president comes out in the news conference the other day and he says that he does not believe and he says he brought it up that Kim Jong-un knew about Otto Warmbier's treatment um, you know, and as we should you know repeat, he was returned to the United States in terrible conditions he was in a coma, died soon afterwards. The president stated several times that he loved Ottawa beer and said he had a very good relationship with his parents. The parents this week came out with a very stringent uh, statement this week refuting the president's claim that North Korea leader knew nothing about this. but it's not only a one beer people have brought up. Jamal Khashoggi and how willing the president seemed to be able to accept the word of uh, the leader, uh, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, that they knew nothing about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, about how he was very willing to believe Vladimir Putin when it came to the hacking of the United States election and whether or not they were poisoning uh, people in, in, in England. Is there a pattern here? Let me put it this way. How does the effect of the things the president says about these individuals he meets reverberate around the world as far as how seriously people take the United States when it comes to human rights?
2: I think President Trump is seen as an American president who does not prioritize human rights. Mm -hmm. But in fairness to Trump, this is always a struggle. And sometimes we feel we're paying lip service to human rights but then otherwise interfering with other issues in our diplomacy or our strategic requirements. Mm -hmm. And so it's been a struggle going back to the Cold War, going back to how do you handle a Mobutu Sese Seiko in Zaire or a Marcos in the Philippines or many other strongman leaders that were at least anti-communist in those days. So we've been wrestling with this problem for a long, long time. I think, however, the way I make piece of it, with it and, and sense of it is to say, you've always got to stay true to your principles. You don't need to necessarily get in somebody else's face each and every negotiation over each and every specific case, but you've got to reiterate America's strong commitment to values as enshrined in not just our own Declaration of Independence and Constitution, but UN Charter, international human rights law, genocide conventions, what we think is actually the common value system of all mankind. And you can't start wavering on that in conversations with dictators. You got to find some way to remind people of the importance of the human rights agenda and how we don't really believe they're separable. We don't really think that in the end we can fully trust somebody who is pretending to be nice with us and do a deal with us but is going home and slaughtering his own people or other innocents. And so sending that message in some way I think should be part and parcel of every part of American diplomacy. But does
1: this embolden strongmen dictators around the world when they say, I can get away with some of this stuff. Maduro in Venezuela, a Duarte in the Philippines, does it make them think that there's not going to be consequences for human rights violations?
2: You know, we were struggling with those guys, or at least uh, Maduro and certainly Kim Jong-un, well before President Trump mm-hmm. came to the White House. This is a struggle that goes through Carter and Clinton and Obama and Bush presidencies. Those were all people who prioritize the human rights agenda. Some of them were Republicans, some Democrats. This is not a particularly partisan issue. It's more a question of tactics and strategy. And I, different American presidents have had different approaches. I think President Trump benefits from the fact that Americans won't let him get away with some of this stuff. So he has himself said in the last 24 hours, I was in a tough place on the auto warm beer issue, which is about as close to you're gonna, as you're going to get from President Trump to an apology. But at least he's acknowledging that he shouldn't and can't be indifferent to the fate of American or North Korean citizens who are victimized by this brutal North Korean dictator. I don't expect him to go to a summit with Kim Jong-il and call the guy a brutal dictator to his face, but I do expect him to underscore America's commitment to human rights, and he's got to find a better way to do that. Some of the American dialogue since he came back, I think, has put pressure on Trump to hopefully do better next time.
1: Here at home, though, the president has some pretty strong words to say about people in this country, specifically the ones that are running the Russia investigation right now. Um, We are two years into this right now, and as we head into the home stretch of the first term of the Trump administration, you know, the president was at CPAC this past weekend and, uh, you know, used some curse words to describe the uh, the Russia investigation. Where are we at with, with Russia right now? Because it almost seems like we are in this holding pattern because of all of this investigatory work that is swirling around that we really have stagnated on whether we are going to make any progress in our relationship with him. Is, has the investigation here in the United States kind of put us into a deep freeze, not, not so much a cold war right now, but hamstrung us on any ability to to make progress on things that we probably do need to make progress with on Russia.
2: I think that's a fair characterization. I know it's one that my colleague Angela Stent has used yes. uh, in her books and, and with you, and mm-hmm. it's a, a good a good word, hamstrung. Mm-hmm. Uh, President Trump might want to do something to change the dynamic of U.S.-Russia relations, be, but he can't, because everyone suspects it's because he's repaying a favor or otherwise trying to cover up some kind of misdoing that might have occurred in 2016, of which he might have been aware, and in a worse case, even complicit. And of course, if he's complicit in what Putin did, uh, then I think you can talk about the word impeachment. Because if Trump worked with a foreign leader to take actions that were illegal and ultimately helped Trump win the presidency, that's potentially impeachable. Almost anything else that's being discussed in the Mueller probe, to my mind, would probably not be impeachable, even if Trump misbehaved. And even if he committed, let's say, some misdemeanors along the way, I don't think that's what the impeachment mechanism is set up to do. And I think Democrats should be wary about seeming to want to relitigate the election outcome over things about Trump that are imperfect, but voters knew were imperfect even before the ballots were cast. Now, if he committed a felony, that's a different matter. And regardless of what the felony was or whether it involved Russia or not, maybe that is impeachable. But if you've got some if you've got some lying, you know, if you've got some Financial improprieties of a type that are common in New York real estate markets. Uh, I don't want to say everybody's got the ethics of Trump, but right. you know some of these kinds of things do happen day to day, and I don't really believe that you impeach over that.
1: And in fact, on the political front, a lot of the Democratic leaders have kind of cooled off the impeachment talk, especially with the you know 2020 election around the corner right now. In fact, we're we're, we're beginning in the early stages of it right now. Um, getting back to Russia, where where are they at right now? Because you know there were these. Rumblings at the time when the president said he was going to pull the U.S. troops out of Syria. Um, The Ukraine still continues to be a a concern. Where are there hot spots of activity right now that we need to be keeping an an eye on?
2: Well, there are a lot. You mentioned a couple. Uh, Obviously, Korea is still a military hot spot, and we could see worse. Afghanistan is a place where we're hoping peace talks deliver. I don't think they will anytime soon, so it's gonna be an ongoing conflict. Luckily, the U.S. role is much smaller. In most of these places, the U.S. military role, we've we've struggled over 20 years to find a way to make it more or less sustainable. And in, in terms of financial cost, in terms of military deployments, there are still some casualties and they're always tragic and always very sad, but they're small in number for our side. So whether it's Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, the broader Middle East. Most of what we're doing, I think, has gotten to a place in the forever wars mm-hmm. that remains disappointing, frustrating, at times tragic, but frankly, perhaps preferable to the mm-hmm. alternatives and probably sustainable. So there are a lot of hot spots, but I think in most of them, especially in the broader Middle East, we found ways to make these operations, however unpleasant, sort of sustainable, keep our homeland safe, Uh, Not put our troops at excessive risk most of the time and mostly work through partner nations that are doing most of the hard fighting.
1: I want to end on a a high note because I thought one of the remarkable things about this week was watching Hanoi. Um, This is a country where we fought a hot war with for the you know going on about over a decade. Uh, You know, my father, when he was in Vietnam during the war, described a country that was ravaged, that was bombed out and that was broken. And what we saw this week was an economic powerhouse in Southeast Asia right now. Is that a model for how possibly the United States at some point could move forward with the North, North Korea?
2: Absolutely. North North Vietnam and then all of Vietnam together uh, from the late 1980s on reforming, opening up. Uh, trying to get their exchange rates, you know, in, in par with the black market, trying to get away from consumer subsidies, trying to go towards export-driven growth, as my colleague David Dollar has written very eloquently mm-hmm. because he studied Vietnam and went, did a lot of World Bank work in that period of time. That was all very impressive. It's gotten Vietnam to a much better place on its economy, and North Korea can follow at least some aspects of that.
1: It's a, It's an interesting economic system, too, because it's not quite pure... Communism, but clearly it's not capitalism either. It's this hybrid that
2: they've created. It's a hybrid, just like in China. Yeah. But a lot of what happens is private. A lot of the driving elements of the economy are indeed due to foreign firms coming in, being allowed to come in, do mm-hmm. joint ventures, do export... Led growth strategies, build factories, et cetera. So it's this, you know, some of the big industries stay in state hands, some of the big parts of the economy stay in state hands, but there's privatization as well. And that's largely what's been driving the success. And somebody mentioned
1: this week, you know, you look at a lot of products these days in the United States, they will say made in Vietnam. You don't see that as much as made in Japan. And they really have become a force to be reckoned with economically.
2: Yeah, and also Japan, which continues to struggle in its post-World War II relations with Korea and China, does okay in places like Vietnam, where it also had an imperial legacy, but where it has now moved past that. And so it's really branched out, and a lot of its industries have relocated to those lower labor cost economies. So a lot's going on in Asia, and it's not all just about China.
1: Michael O'Hanlon is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution here in Washington, and he's been kind enough to join us on the Hill this week. Michael, we thank you. Thank you, Tom. All right. We thank you as well, too. From the Fox 5 Studios in Washington, D.C., this has been the On the Hill Podcast. I'm Tom Fitzgerald. We will see you next time.